think it was the 90s probably when um, there was a lot of talk that IT didn't matter, that the technology didn't matter. Just do it as cheaply as possible and treat it as a commodity and so forth. Turns out the technology really, really, really matters. Welcome to Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It, our podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and together with my co-host Brian Hayes, we have both worked for over 30 years in banking and banking IT before joining VMware. In today's episode, we get our head into the clouds. We talk about the way our customers' use of cloud is changing and continuing to evolve now that they've growing experience, production workloads of their own running outside of their data centres. We chat with James Forrester, VMware's VP and technical lead for cloud sales. But please don't let sales put you off. James is a practitioner and thought leader with super relevant credentials for us, as he's not only got a great history working at the hyperscaler AWS, but also with a number of leading financial services firms. For all of you wondering what a switch to the cloud model would look like for your organisation, this episode is spot on and we're really pleased to have him here today. Welcome, James. Great to have you here. Thanks, Matthew. Great to be here. So can you give us a a quick intro about you and your role? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. So I joined VMware six months ago as the uh, worldwide technical community leader for cloud sales here at VMware. And I've got sort of wearing two hats in that role. I lead a team of multi-cloud architects and cloud strategists, as well as providing uh, overall leadership of the cloud sales technical community. Oh, you mentioned sales. Are we allowed to mention sales, Brian? <laughs> Cut. <laughs> so, uh, so from a career perspective then, how did you end up here? So an interesting roundabout route, if I'm honest. I spent the last four and a half years at AWS, most recently as head of technology for global accounts over there. Super interesting role, got to spend a lot of time with customers and saw how their cloud journeys were evolving over the last several years from really being uh, very focused on thinking about whether cloud was real, whether it was here to stay, whether it was secure, to really being convinced of all those things and trying to get there as fast as possible through to today's multi-cloud conversations, which were very common in, um, in most of the customer interactions I was having. Then prior to that, I spent about 17 years in financial services between London and New York, working for different banks and rating agencies on the other side of the table. So I got to see firsthand what a lot of our customers um, are experiencing every day in terms of how they're thinking about taking very complex environments, highly regulated environments, thinking about how they can make those transitions to cloud and achieve the kind of business agility outcomes that they're looking for. So when did you first realize that you wanted a career in IT? (laughs) Yeah, funny story. I got a a computer when I was six. That was my first computer. It was a ZX Spectrum. And uh, honestly, I I sort of didn't do a whole lot else for several days after that point. I think uh, what was so compelling to me was that it was the first time I'd I'd experienced a computer that you could program. And and that led me down a path of, of trying to get really into getting this little machine to do the kind of things that I wanted it to do, which probably uh, a lot of my friends at the time were not finding terribly exciting, but I found it tremendously rewarding to have a a computer just print the same thing out over and over and over again. And that really led me down that path. And um, after many years of tinkering, I, I found that engineering was really my passion. That was what excited me. Being in financial services gave me an opportunity 
to play with some pretty powerful technology early in my career, as well as use it to bring to bear on some pretty complicated problems, both in terms of dealing with the exotic financial instruments, as well as helping those environments become the kind of regulated environments they needed to be through various different cycles. So IT has always been my interest, the engineering side of it and the tech, and I have been quite privileged, I think, to be able to keep my hands very much in the technology throughout my career. Right. Well, for another day, we ought to talk uh, share spectrum stories. <laughs> so, um, okay. So what was your first job in IT then? And um, how did that get you to where you are now? Well, you know, interestingly, um, before my, my financial services career, I had a, a one-year internship in oil and gas, and that was in London. And I had a couple of different roles there, but my first role was actually migrations. At that time, it was desktop migrations and looking at all the different complexities that a large organization with a large portfolio of complicated technology and complicated software needed to be able to deal with in order to standardize a set of desktop environments. I, I found that oddly fascinating. It combined a couple of different, uh, different passions of mine. One was being able to gather the data, large volumes of data, and understanding how people really use the systems from a data perspective. And then secondly, just talking to folks, going around different business units with different objectives, different needs, and understanding how they worked with technology differently and why trying to drive everybody to a single common standard, which would essentially take a lot of their ability to differentiate within their roles out of their hands, wasn't, wasn't going to work for them. It wasn't going to be the right thing to do. So that gave me my first uh, taste of, of migrations and why that was interesting to me. And that sort of continued through my career. I was also able to, to play around with some very early, more kind of front end facing apps technology there and build some what at the time were quite modern apps using some pretty early HTML prototypes, which would talk to back end microservices quite early when the, uh, the microservices journey was just getting started. So that kind of sparked an interest in both sides of the equation, which was the modern apps as well as the migration and transformation. And it, it stuck with me, to be honest. Good stuff. Okay. Uh, so we're going to head into our deep dive. Ben and I did a real deep dive. All right, uh, let's get into it. We'll find out everything there is to know. James, you used to work at one of the biggest hyperscalers and you've come to VMware. We see lots of people moving in the opposite direction. So why come to VMware? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I had a, a, just a tremendous time at AWS and enjoyed it enormously. And I had a couple of different roles there. Started out as a solutions architect and a solutions architecture manager, and then finally as the head of technology for globals over there. What I think um, was most compelling to me as, as I went through that journey was how customers were transforming. And like I was mentioning, very much the early cloud customer journey was firstly about getting over those different humps of is it secure, is it performant, is it reliable, and so forth, to fully embracing cloud, but generally thinking about a single hyperscaler and how to make that choice uh, and make a, a big bet on a single provider. Those conversations transition to being multi-cloud conversations. And um, what I was starting to see is that the hyperscalers themselves were also thinking about how to support that multi-cloud world. Amazon has a, a principle of customer obsession and, and when I started to think about what might be the next steps in my career, I really wanted to kind of be at the center of an organization that was both really driving that multi-cloud conversation forward, as well as having that customer-obsessed culture. So those two things were, were really key and really stood out to me about VMware. I think um, what I've seen over time with the uh, 70, 80 million workloads that VMware supports for customers 
those are the workloads that enterprises have the most challenges with in moving to cloud. Those are the ones where we need to provide that additional support and help them achieve those business outcomes and that velocity. So the opportunity to be at VMware, to be at the center of that, which is really just a great time to be a customer with the kind of support we're able to provide, was super compelling for me. So what do you see then as the advantages of optimizing to a specific cloud service provider versus having that, that kind of option around portability? Not necessarily every workload, everywhere, every time, but what's your kind of rule of thumb? That journey has evolved as well for customers in that certainly customers who are able to engage effectively with a single cloud provider and fully invest in all of their services, that gives them a commercial advantage as well as being able to probably take advantage of some of those very robust services that have been around for a long time. I think what it does create is a, um, a need to really couple the applications quite tightly to those services. Now, of course, that has advantages as well, because you see any time that Amazon puts out statistics around Prime Day and how AWS uses those services to support Prime Day, that provides a tremendously compelling picture of the kind of reliability and, and scale that uh, a native hyperscaler can support. But at the same time, a lot of our enterprises are, are not yet dealing with cloud native applications. They're dealing with applications that might have run in their environments for a great many years that might not be microservices based. They might be more about using infrastructure in a pretty intensive way, using intensive storage architectures and moving from an architecture to a completely different architecture can be quite challenging for those applications, which they may not even have written in-house themselves. So having a third party rewrite them on their behalf can get quite difficult. So I think there are definitely advantages in optimizing for a specific cloud provider. But when we talk to customers, the ability to move quickly and start taking advantage of the, the velocity of, uh, and the agility that cloud can offer is pretty compelling. At the same time, being able to use more open standards, more open source-based software, being able to code their applications to use APIs which don't run on just a single provider, but on multiple providers, that's really compelling for enterprises. So that's kind of the way that I see the conversation evolving. Okay, so, so is there though also a danger of going all in with one? Because it may be that going into the agreement or the idea, it looks commercially compelling. If everything's there, is there then a need to keep that pencil sharp? Yeah, absolutely. It can certainly elongate the journey as well. And I think what often customers will find is going down a single path means a great deal of diligence upfront in understanding all of the long-term considerations about what that will mean. Are they going to re-architect their applications for a single provider? Are they going to depend on a capability that that provider may not deliver yet? Are they going to take their existing applications that they've purchased and the licensing considerations around those applications? Will those licenses be portable? That brings a lot of complexity in the journey, which can be hard to flush out at the beginning. And if customers take the time to flush that out at the beginning, six months to a year potentially before application workloads can really start moving versus having a bit more confidence that an application can move as is, lift and shift effectively, to an environment which they know how to operate today. So there's definitely risks there. What you said there really resonated with me because I think there's a perception it's public cloud or nothing. And we, we talk to a lot of organizations that are openly and heavily committing to a public cloud path. And I, and I think they're doing that for perhaps very good reason but not necessarily understanding all of the steps of which there are many and some of which you've just described. What do you see as the most common obstacle to companies really creating that capability to move to a cloud at pace? 
and, and really leverage what it offers. Yeah, I think the most common thing I see is the organizational transformation that's required. And that too has gone through a number of different iterations from customers who have taken existing operational capabilities and tried to up-level them to a native cloud type of operations, to customers who have built cloud centers of excellence alongside their existing operations. But then, of course, you have two different operational themes. And if you have multiple clouds, then, of course, you need a different cloud center of excellence for each one of those clouds. That organizational transformation component I see as, as being probably the hardest thing for a lot of our customers to undertake. The second thing I would say is the level of analysis. Too often, I think customers will find themselves having to do a full portfolio analysis with their own CMDB data, if that's in good shape, but sometimes there's gaps there which need to be filled in, but really gain a pretty deep understanding of all of the deep intertwined connections in their application portfolio before they can feel confident enough that a particular piece of it can make the move to cloud. And oftentimes the customer will find just by moving something, it uncovers a whole raft of connections and dependencies that they might not have seen before. And anytime they change something, something else is going to emerge. So I think the more that we can help customers in terms of getting to cloud without having to redo those dependencies and without having to run into those difficult interconnections, the faster customers can get those benefits. You raise a really, really good point. And I, I think it's one that a lot of people will connect to, which is quite often it's not the technology that's the problem. It's the orchestration of the organization to drive significant cultural change. Um, and we found through some of the market research we've done that the biggest problem is never technology. It's never, it doesn't do what it says on the can. It's more often we can't orchestrate ourselves to, to achieve the best outcome from it. With that old world and, and you know cultural change and driving to a new world, we obviously still see a lot of organisations that are very, very siloed and now have, must have a fear of moving away from those silos because that's what's made organisations and, and individuals successful. Is there a danger of recreating old silos in other people's data centres as part of this process? Are we, are we helping them overcome that? That is a real danger. And I think there's a couple of good examples there, but what it comes back to is when there's an excessive focus on trying to simply recreate a data center environment in the cloud, lock, stock, and barrel. That can really very quickly impact the economics of moving to cloud in the first place, particularly if things like the resilience of a dedicated instance or a dedicated host is specifically tried to replicate in the cloud environment. The, the benefits that cloud brings is by doing just the right amount of analysis to understand how to optimize. And that optimization doesn't have to all take place on day one. What I often see is that um, customers will, will try to do a lot of the optimization work on paper before they move in spreadsheets and so forth. It very rarely ends up being reflective of the actual profile under which an application runs once it's moved. So what I generally encourage is focus on, on the move and the velocity of the move and the ability to revert. So once you move, you get a sense of how well an application or a set of applications can run in the cloud, and you can start optimizing, which is much easier to do in a cloud environment than it is in a data center environment. So essentially, get out of the spreadsheets, get into the cloud. So that path to live inside your own data center and the role that enterprise IT plays has kind of been that backstop or the thing that's really ensured the operational resilience or the end-to-end -end service is maintained. Once you go into the cloud, a lot of that visibility kind of goes from enterprise IT and is with the developers. You know, do, do you see the developers are really 
owning this now? Is it really their time? Or is the role of the kind of the service manager and the, and the whole enterprise IT got to evolve with it? Yeah, I think for a lot of customers, the ultimate destination is more of that DevOps style culture where an application owner and application team own both the delivery of their application and the operations of their application. But for a lot of customers, that's that really difficult organizational transformation piece, and that's a long way out. I think what's so compelling about where we are now is that we can really make heroes out of enterprise IT because of the cloud. It's not as though those responsibilities to service level agreements, to backup and recoverability, to resiliency, to disaster recovery, none of that goes away in cloud. It's not magical in that respect. It just has to transform. And I think where we see some of these enterprise IT organizations is evolving is not just being able to provide that same level of capability, but an up level of capability. So for example, managing backup and restore typically of data or of content can evolve into backup and restore of entire environments, of entire virtualized stacks, which becomes tremendously relevant in the current security and ransomware climate. If an enterprise IT organization has last known good versions of its backups and is doing a, a really nice job of testing those and making sure those backups are restorable, all of that great governance and policy can then start to extend to an entire application stack. So if an application becomes compromised, rolling back to a last known good version of an entire stack and getting the business back on its feet right away. So really, I think the opportunity is to make heroes out of those enterprise IT teams. And in the longer term, one thing that I've observed is that the applications they support are generally the applications producing the critical business data that is going to drive the future of artificial intelligence, machine learning, analytics, uh, and all of these very exciting capabilities. And if that team can be a great partner in bringing not only those capabilities around, uh, around moving data into those environments, but also in supporting modern apps for the development teams around containers and so on, then they're going to become an absolutely indispensable capability within their organizations. So I, I'm excited on their behalf, and I hope they join me in that. Yeah, so I, I think that's that thing. The accountability for the service still remains with the CIO. And we've talked about this before, Brian, where something goes wrong, who's the CEO call? He or she starts by calling the CIO and asking what's going on. So I think with that capability comes a whole lot of responsibility to make sure that the service is, is implemented in a way that is visible and still very controllable, or the dashboards, all the metrics and service at the heart of it, rather than just getting something in the cloud. Yeah, I think that's right, especially in um, the highly regulated industries that we've had experience with here. Those requirements don't go away. The obligations and commitments to meeting those needs don't go away at all because of cloud. I think um, what, again, makes it a great time to be a customer is that the, uh, the hyperscalers and our partners are investing a tremendous amount in supporting a lot of those requirements themselves. So over time, our IT partners are able to take advantage of the investments the hyperscalers are making in supporting that governance and those requirements, which of course frees up some of their capacity to be able to do more of that business agility and outcomes-based work. I think the other big component of that transformation is that cloud is very much more a recoverability rather than a troubleshooting mindset. We've all seen these cases where the troubleshooting around an issue, that's the first thing that starts to kick off after the, the CIO gets the call war rooms and rallying to make sure that issue is diagnosed and resolved as quickly as possible. In a cloud operating model, in its truest sense, whole parts of the environment, if they're failing, they can be very quickly walled off, 
moved off to the side, taken out of rotation, if you like, while a fresh copy of that environment end to end is stood up and the business gets back on its feet. And then the troubleshooting can happen in parallel and offline. And that's a much better call for a CIO to be able to have. There's a lot of regulation, as you talked about in financial services. Regulators are becoming far more in tune with the potential of the cloud and, and what it can and can't do, or what perceived it can and can't do. What's your interpretation in terms of emerging regulations, recoverability that you've talked around, how people are interpreting those and, and manage risk? At the end of the day, they, they want to manage their risk profile. What's your observation? I think a couple of things stand out to me. One is that it's, it's really important that be a bi-directional conversation between the regulators and, and the uh, customers and the industries that they're regulating. I think there's a ton of thought leadership, which our customers are bringing to the table around things like data sovereignty, data residency, and so forth, and all the other um, aspects of compliance and regulation, which in a working forum to produce regulation that achieves its objectives, but is also things that are quick to implement, can be implemented rapidly and take advantage of all the agility of cloud, it's, it's critical that that be a really bi-directional conversation there. I think the, um, the other observation I've seen is about how policy can layer and it can build up over time. And of course, as we know, the regulation itself will also change over time. And, and when new regulations are issued, IT will, will receive an interpretation of those regulations and will implement those in the environment. But I rarely see customers do long traceability exercises to make sure that the regulations that they might have implemented at one point in time are still in line with the regulations as they stand today. So in the same way as cloud is a great opportunity to have another look at technical debt and start to potentially take out some of the technical debt from the environment, those layers of policy, which might be implementing a policy twice or three times, can potentially be consolidated down to a single implementation of that policy. And that can save customers a ton of time and expense as well. Well, well we've always done it that way, so we can't do it that way anymore. Yeah. <laughs> So one of the things we were talking about previously was going all in with one versus the perceived benefits of multiple or multi-cloud. What are your thoughts there and how different do you need to think of your architecture? Realistically, most customer conversations include an element of multi-cloud today, and that's certainly been growing a great deal over time. What is driving that, I think, is that there is differentiation between a lot of the hyperscaler services, whether it's because a particular cloud provider has the right infrastructure capabilities in the right region to meet a customer's requirements, or a particular set of technology services that meet a customer's requirements. Those things have evolved in different directions across different hyperscalers. So customers need to be able to have those choices and be able to make those choices. I think multi-cloud is here to stay, and I think it's just the reality of the situation. Now, where I think um, I'm really encouraged that the, the hyperscalers have responded to that is that we're starting to see a bit of a, a decoupling of those cloud native services from the cloud providers themselves. So for example, with, with some of the announcements around BigQuery and, and Omni and AWS's container services that can run anywhere, those are really powerful new options for, for customers to consider. And that's clearly a response to what customers are asking for and what customers need to make progress. Now, where I think there is a common baseline, if you like, is in infrastructure. Now, and that's where I think we can offer something which makes that a little bit simpler for customers in terms of being able to take an existing VM-based workload 
and being able to run that in the same way, no matter where you choose to run it, whether it's across any cloud, any public cloud, or a cloud partner, or in your own data center on various different uh, hybrid offerings that way, that takes a lot of what, uh, what Amazon used to call the undifferentiated heavy lifting out of the equation. And it starts to deliver the benefits of cloud, not all of them, but a lot of them, much more rapidly without having to retool the organization and then allowing customers to take advantage of some of those much more cloud provider specific, higher level technology options that customers love for things like artificial intelligence and machine learning and big data and so forth. So for customers, I think it's the best of all possible worlds. Okay. So let's play out this sort of a strange thought that I've been having on this. So having previously been responsible for looking at data centers and data center loss scenarios and the need to always have a pair of data centers. So something catastrophic happens, you lose a data center, you're operating in one data center. Whilst you're then operating in that one data center, you have no resilience, no second in the pair. So do you then look to going to a cloud service provider to be your second? And it could be that you go to a hoster rather than a full-on cloud service provider. But let's say you go to a cloud service provider. Once you're up running in that cloud service provider, I would have thought there's a logical step that says, hang on a minute, we can do all this here. Why don't we make a different cloud service provider our backup and actually just shut the data center? So what are your what are your thoughts on that as that kind of jumping to the end game? Does data center loss scenario and, and stuff, it's just that just go away and you just have two cloud providers? I think uh, it's rarely going to be a one size fits all from what I've seen. Customers who've made very recent investments in their data centers and are very happy with the, the performance and resiliency of those data centers will probably have a different perspective on it than those who maybe are looking to make a data center exit. And I think in, in almost every case, having that additional resiliency of a cloud service provider in a, a high availability or a pilot-like type mode definitely offers a customer an option to advance their cloud journey whilst also solving for some of the other investment questions that they have around their existing data centers. Now, where I, I do see customers struggle a little bit is when they are spanning applications between cloud service providers versus spanning resiliency characteristics between cloud service providers. And the reason for that is generally because of the data transit costs. So if an application has to communicate rapidly between cloud service providers, between physical locales, you deal with latency concerns, yes, but you also deal with the costs of moving that data between those two different organizations. So usually what I see most customers be successful with is when they pick a, a single provider for a particular role. So if that is failover, if that's disaster recovery, then that'll make a lot of sense. And then another cloud service provider can potentially provide other types of capabilities in the organization that don't necessarily transit a huge amount of data between those two organizations. So in a recent episode, we were talking with Tom Kellerman, who's the head of cybersecurity strategy for us. We asked him to give us a prediction, or not a prediction, but a, a kind of a, a crystal ball, what do you see happening? And one of the things he said, a bit of a doomsday scenario, was that what would be the case then if you, if you lost a cloud service provider? Is that something that, you, that we should be thinking about? How do you think of them like a data center? Or you know, is that just kind of like a doomsday scenario that we're all going to be in a, in a really bad place? <laughs> I, I'm sure it would put us all in a bad place. But I think what's worth thinking about is that, firstly, cloud recoverability is really the, the emphasis in that conversation, as opposed to the resiliency of an individual component. 
All the cloud providers architect a little bit differently, whether it's availability zones or regions or data centers, but it's possible to achieve extremely high levels of resiliency. So losing a, an entire cloud provider is almost sort of a, a more of a corporate entity discussion than it is a, a technology architecture discussion. And customers can achieve extremely high levels of resiliency with a single cloud provider. But I think you touch on something really important there, which is around the controls that are built into the environment. So firstly, is the workload or set of workloads or portfolio architected to take advantage of all the re resiliency that a particular cloud provider offers? If the answer to that is yes, and all of these providers have specific architectural guidance that helps customers do that, then what's the additional levels of controls that allow a customer to meet their own obligations by doing that? Now, I think uh, as we go back to that previous point, talking about the, the bi-directional conversation with regulators, and thinking about a, if a properly architected solution uh, it achieves the levels of resiliency that are required by a particular organization, that's a great starting point if we can get to that. Beyond that, then customers can certainly build in additional levels of resiliency, whether it's failing back to their own data center, whether it's failing over to another cloud provider. All of those are, are perfectly possible. And the more similar the environment is, and the fewer additional moving parts that environment has, the easier that obviously becomes. So if it's, a, if it's an environment that's moving VMs to VMs, that's gonna be simpler than an environment that might be moving VMs to containers in the event of a disaster, for example. And that's one thing which, uh, when customers think about architectural guidance, more and more of those conversations are, how would I move? Whether it's because of a disaster, whether it's because of economics, cost optimization, security, whatever it might be. But we have to be able to think through how would a customer move a workload, even if it's not necessarily driven by a disaster? So um, maybe I need to take off my doomsday, non-functional requirement, obsessed hat there. When you get into that mode of thinking about everything that could go wrong, you think about everything that could go wrong. So, so changing that slightly then, we made some big announcements recently then about apps and cloud. What do you see as the advantages for our customers in, those, in, you know, in what we've just announced? We had the, um, the Apps and Cloud Transformation event, and we launched a, a Cloud Universal at the end of March there. And I think what's so important about that for customers is that it really responds to what customers have been asking of us. The first is, how do we get to cloud without going through all of those very difficult organizational transformations that have uh, impacted their cloud journeys in the past? So by offering a consistent set of, of cloud options and consistent set of cloud standards to which Customers are already familiar with these 70, 80 million workloads that we have that they can essentially take advantage of all the benefits of cloud without having to fundamentally re-architect their applications. That's what customers have been asking of us. And, and that's a, a lot of what this transformation is about. From the modern apps perspective, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with making heroes out of IT. Not only is the organizational imperative to be successful in these cloud transformations, to deliver business outcomes. But as you've called out, development teams and application teams need places to land their modern applications as well. And increasingly, those modern apps take advantage of containers and Kubernetes capabilities and so on that are a little bit different to the traditional VM. Now, by being able to enable enterprise IT to provide those container-based capabilities for apps teams to land their apps, right alongside the VMs that run those critical production business workloads, enterprise IT becomes that enabler for both cloud transformation and modern apps. And that's a pretty exciting place to be.
Cloud Universal, I think, is the commercial counterpart to that, where customers are accustomed to consuming public cloud in a subscription model. It's one of the great benefits that you pay for what you use when you use it on demand. That is the evolving model that customers have told us that they want to get to. And the launch of Cloud Universal allows customers to consume VMware in exactly that way. James, I've got, I've got one question before we, we move into to the next section. And um, it's a question I've asked a few times through the podcast series. So I'd like to ask you a very similar question. You're king for today. You're a CIO in a traditional FS organization that's got obviously cloud ambition. What are the three things that you really focus on and drive? Firstly, it's looking at the whole thing from an app's perspective. So I got to get the app owners in the room and I want to find the applications that are going to move quickly and most benefit from a cloud migration. Again, I think it talks about uh, you know, not spending too much time in the spreadsheet. So up-leveling that conversation to not be an IT conversation and think about the app owners as those who will eventually benefit the most from and be the key enablers of moving those things. I think um, the second piece is not worrying too much about picking or standardizing on a particular cloud provider. Think about velocity first. Think about how I can get to cloud as quickly as possible because I'm going to uncover things and learn things that I didn't know in my environment much more quickly by just attempting those moves. So developing a really solid backout strategy, really solid recovery strategy, and then picking an app and going with it, and then building velocity and momentum from app by app by app. I think it's really important if I'm that CIO, I'm celebrating each incremental win, each incremental success, and building my expertise and building my organization's reputation by doing that, by actual moves with business outcomes for application owners that they can talk about. And then uh, I think the third thing is, again, coming back to this making heroes out of the team and, and making sure that the team is seen as the enabler of this cloud transformation and what it's going to bring to the business. It comes back to linking to the application owners as well. But those teams who have supported those applications well, understand all the ins and outs, how they work. Again, those applications are emitting the critical business data that is going to drive those customers' um, business outcomes and innovation. So instead of thinking of themselves as just maintaining applications, think of themselves as owning that data, maintaining that data as well, and enabling that data to quickly get into the hands of data scientists, uh, machine learning experts, artificial intelligence, and so on, to enable those really critical capabilities that are going to be so innovative in financial services and all other industries. Yeah, nice. I like that thing about it's the app perspective, making sure that app owners are on board. I think going back to one of your previous points, it's the cultural shift. This is a different way of doing it. There's still, there's jobs for pretty much everyone still in this, taking different roles and doing this in a different way. So uh, yeah, I really like that answer. All right, let's move on. So we're going to head into our crystal ball section. I see the future. Really? Well, what do you have, a crystal ball? What's going to happen? Listen, if you know something, you got to tell me. So James, uh, we're in our crystal ball section. So what do you think will be the one most significant game-changing technology or, or technologies for 2021 and beyond? And, and how do you think that's going to help or hinder financial services? I think we're going to see a really interesting pivot. I don't know if it'll happen next year, this year, but at some point, it's going to be common, I think, to consume more compute resources with machine learning and AI and analytics 
than our running traditional applications. And I think that's going to be a huge tipping point because, of course, those machine learning models that have to get trained, you don't want to run 1,000 or 10,000 CPU cores all the time to do that. You're going to spin them up very, very quickly and spin them back down again when the model is trained. Now, that, I think, is, is going to really change the way that we look at these things, especially with modern apps and containers coming into the stack. So in terms of specifically how that's going to help financial services, that's going to mean that, that these customers are going to need very rapid bursting capabilities to be able to take advantage of enormous amounts of compute resource for short periods of time in order to take the data that's coming out of their existing virtualized environments, analyze it, and then do clever things with it for business outcomes and agility. So I think there's a great opportunity there to have really robust capabilities on both sides of that equation, long-running, efficiently-run applications alongside really fairly extreme burst capabilities that are going to complement each other perfectly. And I think that's probably going to happen in the next couple of years or so. That is a great prediction. It's one of those things, it was, it was almost Kellerman-esque, which is a new phrase I'm now going to make, <laughs> which is when and James has done exactly the same. He said something, and I, I've actually had to visualize it and think about it. And it's like, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. So James, for you, just for you, the last time we had, not the last time we had Tom on, but the first time we had Tom on, he sort of gave a prediction and I just sat, sat there thinking, I need to go and reboot my router. I need to change all the IP addresses. I need to change all my passwords. <laughs> and it, it wasn't quite as horrifying as that session, uh, of it, in, in, in that sense, but um, no, no, really good, really, really good and succinctly put. All right, Thank super. Uh, okay, so um, let's move into our final um, section. It's a bit more lighthearted. We call it our lightning round. Uh, we usually call it the lightning round. Okay, welcome to the super awesome bonus lightning round. The lightning round begins now. Okay, so this is our fast and fun round. You can pass. That's absolutely okay. We'll try and ask you as many questions as we can. Uh, there's no right or wrong answers. It's just really a bit of fun. So uh, we'll just start. Uh, what's your favorite book or movie? Uh, movie would be Casablanca. Book would be uh, Dr. Mutter's Marvels. Favorite one day getaway location? Fire Island, New York. Lovely place. <laughs> uh, the first concert or live performance you saw? That would be Aladdin in pantomime in Richmond. What was the last concert or live performance that you saw? It was either a, uh, a cabaret at Bar Zedel in London or the show cabaret on Broadway in New York. And I can't remember exactly which one was first. So... Uh... Cat or dog? Well, uh, we have a dog now, and my family has rescued both dogs and cats over our time, and we love our dog. But I got to say, my, my kids introduced me to uh, this Netflix show called My Octopus Teacher, and octopuses have got some game, as it turns out. <laughs> Are you a morning or an evening person, James? Morning. Easy one. <laughs> What's the favorite item you've bought in the last year? That would have to be my Peloton bike. It's been an absolute lifesaver. When was the last time you used cash and what did you use cash for? We moved house two years ago and discovered a terrific Chinese restaurant just around the corner. And um, what, is, what is unique about this Chinese restaurant is not just how fantastic the food is, but they are not on the internet and they do not take anything but cash. So um, that's what I keep my cash around for. Who's your mentor or have you been, or who have you been most inspired by? Most inspired by uh, is a woman named Frances Kelsey. She worked at the, the Food and Drug Administration in the US for many years in the 20th century. 
She was an amazing person who used data, essentially, to make a really strong argument about prescription drug safety in the US. And uh, she was awarded a presidential medal for it. So I think a great example of a physician and data scientist who really made a difference in an industry. What are you most excited by um, about the future of financial services and technology in that relationship? Well, you know, I think I think we've alluded to it a little bit about this um, IT as heroes. I'll give it a little more context around that in that I remember a time in, I think it was the 90s probably, when um, there was a lot of talk that IT didn't matter, that the technology didn't matter. Just do it as cheaply as possible and treat it as a commodity and so forth. Turns out the technology really, really, really matters. You know, Jeff, Jeff Bezos thought the technology really, really, really mattered. And it turns out the technology really matters. So I'm incredibly excited that the industry has turned around to the importance of technology. We see more and more CEOs declaring themselves to be technology companies, even though they're in non-technology industries. And I think right now is just a fantastic time to be in tech. What one thing have you always wished you could do, but have not had time to do yet? Learn to fly in an airplane. My next question is plane, train or automobile. (laughs) Which one, which is your favorite method of travel? I do miss planes a lot. I enjoyed that experience of adventure and getting on a a vehicle to something new. I got to say, I'm also a boat person. I do enjoy boats. And and given the choice um, of taking a boat to a destination or any other means, I'd probably choose a boat. We've asked this of a lot. I'm guessing you're going to have a slightly different view. Edge or cloud? See, I view them as inseparable. Can't have one without the other. And I think Cloud is the mindset and the consumption model that makes Edge successful. So I view them as as absolutely part and parcel of the conversation. Random, you have your own TV night show, your talk show. Who is your first guest? I think it would have to be Alan Turing. Uh, So um, what's one thing that we can steal from you as a great idea? Well, I'm happy for you to steal this from me. I took it from my previous company, which is the concept of the press release from the future. You'll have seen this written about at Amazon quite a bit. I think it's one of the great innovation mechanisms that are out there. Uh, And I've been encouraging my teams to all follow the same approach, where if you've got a good idea, write the press release from the future about it, as though it's already been successful, and then use that as the anchoring document to pull everybody into your idea. Now, I, I've done more of these than I can count. Half of them, when I actually get to writing it down, you know, didn't really think it through. wasn't a great idea in the first place. The other half, I feel pretty good about. So I think that's a fantastic tool. You're in a karaoke bar. What's your go-to song? Bohemian Rhapsody. Wow. Including the choral bit. That's impressive. Including the choral <laughs> bit. I've actually done it. And it was not in a karaoke bar. It was in a, a sushi restaurant and I enlisted a couple of backing singers from our group to help me out with it. I will not play the recording. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm track them down. Um, what piece of career advice do you wish you'd given to your younger self? Always be seeking great leaders. You can learn so much. I have found that throughout my career journey, I've been blessed with some really terrific leaders And it's honestly all the best career moves that I've made have been because of those great leaders. And they've helped me climb my learning curve faster than I could possibly have imagined. Fabulous advice. Fantastic. Thank you, James. Uh, Thank you for joining us today. I really enjoyed the conversation. It feels like we only scratched the surface on the topic. And uh, I think there's plenty more to chat through in the future. Thank you very much for having me, uh, Matthew and Brian. I really, really enjoyed this. 
To connect with James and keep up with his take on our cloud story, the best way is through James' LinkedIn page. Search for James Forrester at VMware or check out our show notes for a link. If we can help you in any way, please talk with your VMware account team. Or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. Just search for Brian Hayes or Matthew O'Neill at VMware. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matthew O'N or the podcast on Twitter at dbtbpod. And you can also find our show notes at don'tbreakthebankpodcast.com. If you like our podcast and can leave us a review and comment on Apple Podcasts, that would be really appreciated. Also, if you have any ideas for future episodes or wish to appear as a future guest, please do get in touch. We hope you can join us again next time. Please do take care.